The United States is one of the greatest republics to have ever existed, one of the most successful societies in human history. The United States planted its flag upon the surface of the moon a generation ago. The United States recently planted a unmanned drone on the surface of Mars. The United States beats all challenges when it comes to technology and innovation and all-round economic ingenuity. Yet the United States somehow struggles to teach 14-year-old kids in West Jackson to read and write and the basics of math. And joining me today is someone who perhaps knows more about the reason for this failure than anyone else in America, Connor Burke. Connor, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for the chat. Now, you have recently written a rather good book. I say a book. You, you, you're a prolific author. I think you're on your 30th or 40th book um, overall. But your recent book is about this failure of the public government-run education system in America to really deliver on what ought to be the promise of America for young Americans. What, what is this failure and why are government schools not delivering? Well, the failure is well known and broadly understood, but has led to very little action. Uh, I'd like to share the story and the reason we wrote this book, actually published uh, on April 26th of this year. It was the 40th anniversary of when a report was published by the Ronald Reagan administration warning Americans after an 18-month review of the school system across the country, listening to teachers and reviewing curriculum and so forth, they wrote in a report in 1983 that America's educational foundations were being eroded as a result of what they called a rising tide of mediocrity. And they threatened or they, they warned that if a foreign government had threatened to impose upon America the very mediocre educational performance that now exists in 1983, we might have viewed it as an act of war as it stands, we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. So uh, the failures in the system um, are, are a long time running. It's basically the slow slide into mediocrity where we've uh, come to accept the very dumbed down curricula and standards and testing uh, that we now utilize and look to as somehow the benchmark of proficiency. And even with a declining benchmark and, and dumbed down curriculum, the students are still failing. We're having to offer massive amounts of remedial education to college students to basically retrain them in what they should have already learned. Uh, and the students are largely failing their remedial classes too. So uh, if I'm putting my kind of tinfoil hat on a bit, I, I do believe there are people who, uh, and frankly, I think those in power, they don't want an educated electorate. They don't want uh, well-informed independent individuals it is easier to rule over people who are ignorant and thus more easily able to be led. So I believe there are people in our society who cheer the declining standards that we have. They're okay with the intellectual mediocrity because they in kind of elite society are more able to shape the masses. This, of course, was the vision of the architects of the modern school system who went to Prussia and saw this very militaristic uh, top-down education style. So Horace Mann and John Dewey and these other guys in America, they were collectivists. 
They were secular humanists. They were socialists. They wanted to basically, in my word, brainwash children to believe differently than their parents and be able to be shaped into what they wanted uh, the future of society to look like. They had to disconnect parents from the kids. So they came up with compulsory schooling laws. They came up with factory schooling. And now we've inherited today uh, a schooling system that was preparing kids for factory work a century ago. Uh, continues to school them in the same way, even though our economy and future is so much different. Uh, it's very behind the times. It has it has resisted all uh, forms of innovation and entrepreneurship within the system because it's a monopoly. We can certainly get into that, but there are obviously many and diverse reasons. But what I want to convey is this is not some new thing. It's not post COVID. It's not oh my gosh, what's been happening? This has been decades in the making, and too many people have been okay with it. You make a very good point that, in effect, we've got an education system inherited from sort of late 19th century Prussia, which may not be quite the system that we need to have to succeed in the mid 21st century. But you also touched on another point there. You you, you almost implied sort of brave new world where a, a sort of very powerful elite at the top of um, society, in effect, don't really want to have everyone have the opportunities that they have. Is there a sort of slight element of Brave New World in this? Well, if you read dystopian literature, which I'm a big fan of, what you consistently find is that those in power very much want a dumbed down populace. They don't want people to be aware of their rights. They don't want people to be even aware of what's happening around them. They want to distract them as Rome did with bread and circuses. They want them. Uh, what's the movie? Wally, I think, was that kind of dystopian future uh, kind of movie with the little robot and all the people are kind of fat with their slushies watching TV screens the whole time. Right. That that is how you can more easily rule over people. So, uh, yes, I believe. Uh, look, if, if you're a, a dictator or a wannabe dictator, do you want, you know, rugged individualists, entrepreneurially minded people in your system? No, they're a threat to you. Um, and so you don't want that. I, I do believe there are people like that. And if I were a century ago to sit down on paper and say, how can I undermine America? It's not from without. It's not, you know, boogeymen from across the world who are going to launch wars and try and attack us or terrorists who are going to try and just randomly blow up buildings or things. No, I'm going to destroy America from within. I'm going to have it, you know, eat its own. I, uh, there's the great quote from Goethe says, uh, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they're free. So I'm going to distract Americans to believe in these superficial freedoms and go to their Fourth of July parades and blow up fireworks and think, yay, we're free, while they then go to sleep the rest of the year and they're conditioned into inaction because, oh, just let the politicians handle it and just listen to what the media tells you to believe. Um, and I'm going to basically plug them into the matrix so that they don't realize the true nature of reality. And and I think that's what we frankly see in our society today is a lot of... Uh, a lot of results that are similar to what you might actually plan for how to undermine a country from within. Now, there are lots of very short chapters looking at some of the failings of the government system. And there are a couple I just wanted to pick up on. One chapter talks about information over inquiry. What, what do you mean by that as a failure of the government run system? Well, this, this is the classic distinction between te teaching a child how to think versus teaching a child what to think. And we all say that, oh, we need to teach our children how to think. And then we enroll them in these schools that don't do any of that. And they simply treat every children like a cog in a machine that has to be manufactured and shaped according to what the manual says. They need to learn all the same things to be taught in the same way at the same age as all their other peers. So it's a very information heavy approach where... 
you know, hey, just in case you ever need this information 30 years from now, we have to cram this in your brain now and make sure that you learn it uh, versus inquiry, which is how we as adults learn. It's like, hey, I'm curious about what's happening in Ukraine. I'm going to go read Wikipedia for three hours and watch a documentary. And and I'm, I'm curious and I'm able to have freedom to kind of explore uh, where those interests take me. But we have a schooling system that suppresses curiosity. Kids raise their hand and say, why do I need to learn this? You know, Put your hand down. It's going to be on the test. And, and they're not allowed to learn about the world around them uh, based on their own interests and paths in life. We treat them as commodities on a conveyor belt that all have to be shaped and formed in the same path. So that is one of 40 ways that we argue that schools are failing kids is by not honoring their individuality and simply treating them as receptacles to receive the same information as everyone else, when that's not how we as adults and humans naturally learn. And that's like division of labor is a thing and specialization. And and so uh, so that's what that chapter kind of touches on. Now, I'm talking to you from Mississippi. And if we were having this conversation, you know, 50, 60 years ago in Mississippi, one of the things that would have really dominated any discussion about public education, quite rightly, would have been the issue of, of segregation. The thing that slightly troubles me, and you can probably tell I'm a bit of an outsider here in Mississippi, but the thing that slightly troubles me coming into Mississippi is that, in a weird way, what we have at the moment is as segregated a system as I could possibly have imagined. Far from thinking that rulings made by the Supreme Court in the 60s and the 70s, you know, the Warren Court and all the rest of it, far from that fixing the problem, it, it doesn't seem to fix the problem. And you've got a chapter, it's a, it's a short chapter, but it's quite a pithy, powerful chapter about sophisticated segregation. How does the government system today lead to this kind of um, uh, sophisticated form of segregation? There, there's various angles uh, to take this. I'll, I'll focus on the one that comes foremost to mind, and, and that is intellectual segregation. Uh, so teachers typically, when they have a class full of diverse students with diverse interests and abilities, they have to find a way to communicate and teach all the same material to all of those kids. Well, what happens is the, the intelligent kids rush through the material quickly or are bored by it and not even challenged by it. So they procrastinate or whatever, but they're not challenged and therefore they're not allowed to run at a speed that would be most comfortable to them. Meanwhile, the kids who are falling behind and really struggling get an inordinate amount of the teacher's time because they're always trying to help them kind of keep up, uh, keep up. And then largely the teachers end up trying to teach to the middle. And so you're basically segregating classes into diverse abilities, yet homogenizing them all into one class instead of stratifying them and say, you know, and some schools over time have experimented with like gifted programs and so forth, where the, you know, the gifted kids can go to a more advanced class and uh, but too few schools have that. And the ones that do it, I don't think do it well enough. Um, and so you do have this kind of segregation where kids are being divided uh, based on their abilities. And the system is ill-equipped to be able to um, educate children of such diverse abilities all in, in, into one. Like, why do we think that it's wise and proper to group kids in a class simply because the one thing they have in common is that they all were born within you know 12 months of one another like what does passing through your mother's birth canal do to <laughs> create some sort of like commonality between you and other people like how why is it that we combine kids based on age it makes no sense um but it does lead to the problems like we're describing here which is when you group all these kids together simply based on age there's a wide range of abilities and interests and so you end up uh, i think undermining uh each child's individual 
educational attainment because of this weird intellectual segregation that that happens simply because children of diverse abilities are all clumped together. Now, your book talks a lot about the problems and we've dwelt on a couple of them. Anyone interested, please do have a look at uh, Connor's book, uh, Mediocrity. It is very, very worth um, every 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 minute you spend reading it. I, I learned a huge amount. Um, some of the solutions. I know you're a big advocate of homeschooling. I know you're a supporter of charter schools. I know you also support ESAs. Talk us through some of the things, some of the solutions to this problem. So I am not a smart person. Um, and so I don't necessarily want to centrally plan what education should look like in our country. I don't, uh, you know, it's, it's what Hayek called the fatal conceit, right? Where someone could be so like uh, brash to think that they have all the right ideas. I, I don't. What I do know is that there are certain systems that produce far better outcomes by unleashing the creativity and potential of a diverse range of individuals who aren't centrally planned, but they're each able to individually plan within their own spheres and abilities. So the solution, if I have one, is that the system needs competition. We all know, looking at any monopoly throughout history, that inevitably what happens is that the quality of the product goes down. And the cost of it increases because you don't really have competition. You don't have to pay attention to your customers. You aren't feeling the competitive pressure to increase and create new options and so forth. Um, and, and we understand that when it comes to products and services. And yet, for some reason, for a century plus, uh, so many people in our society perceive that education is an, a service or a commodity unlike anything other. It has to be elevated unto this hollow, uh, hallowed uh, ground where it is afforded this kind of quasi-monopoly status. So ultimately what we need is where uh, what you might call backpack funding, school choice, some of these options where if taxpayers are going to invest money into educating the rising generation, don't we want to get the best bang for the taxpayer buck? Don't we want to leverage that investment to be the most efficient and the most effective uh, possible? And if so, do we want to centrally plan that investment or can we empower parents to find the education solutions that best fit their family, whether that's homeschooling or a micro school or a charter school school or a public school. Um, let's have choice. Let's empower parents to choose. And let's create a bit of competitive pressure on the public school system so that it will be induced to improve. I'm not out to destroy the government school system. If anything, I want to enhance and improve it by creating a competitive pressure that's going to lead people in that system to try and find better ways to improve and attract their customer base, which would no longer be guaranteed. We're seeing states across the country pass uh, laws now, which are often called education savings accounts. Uh, our home state of Utah just recently passed one. Congratulations. And so these, thank you. Yeah, no, these are a model that certainly Mississippi and others need to look to, to basically unleash that, that education entrepreneurship rather than centrally planning uh, the education of the future generation. We know that the government messes all kinds of things up. Why are we trusting the government to be the provider of education services for our children during their most intellectually formative years? Let's not be so silly to think that the government is going to do that well and right. Uh, let's open up a, a marketplace. Let's unleash education entrepreneurs. Let's have a diversity of options for a diverse uh, citizenry. And that to me is if there's a solution, it's it's better architecting a system that's going to have more options for more kids that better serve their individual needs and interests. It sounds like the key to doing that is a mechanism. It could be a legal mechanism. It could be a law, a, a, a litigation right. 
giving people some kind of mechanism that allows them as mum and dad to control their kids' share of public money. Is, is that, that sounds to me like that's the key. That is the key. And that can come in various forms. It can be a tax credit. It can be a scholarship. It can, you know, there's different states trying different models. But the principle is just what you described. It's it's putting the parents a bit more in the driver's seat. And we say this all the time. You talk to any public school teacher and they will readily concede that the best way to guarantee improved outcomes for a student is parent interest and involvement. And so what better way than to give parents some actual decision-making opportunity and say, hey, if you're not satisfied with what's going on here, you can actually choose something better for your student. You can kind of get in, uh, into what's uh, uh, happening and, and have some actual decision outcomes. If parents are disempowered, they're not going to get involved. So let's empower them so that they do get involved. What do you say to one lawmaker, um, allegedly a conservative um, I was talking to, who who came back with this idea that, you know, and it's a point that needs addressing. He came back and said to me, you know, fundamentally, there are a lot of good people. They love their kids, but a lot of them aren't that educated themselves. How can they possibly get that involved? Um, you know, leave it leave it to the school board, leave it to the experts, leave it to the teachers. What, what do you say to that kind of argument? Well, first, I would say we just went through a two to three year uh, uh, medical freedom travesty when much was left to the experts and look where that got us. Uh, but setting COVID aside, what I would say is that criticism is something that has been lobbed at the homeschooling community for decades. Parents can't educate their own kids. They're not trained. They're not certified. They don't know. They're not smart. Uh, and yet, in any test that's been done of homeschool students compared to their public school peers, the homeschool students are always more uh, further ahead and perform better than their public school uh, peers. And so data does not bear out this concern that parents are ill-equipped. And frankly, it's not the parents are going to be the ones teaching. Sure, let's leave it to the experts, but there's tons of experts who aren't teaching in the public school uh, system. There are micro school people. There's a physicist who started his own online school to you know teach physics, but he doesn't have a teaching credential, so he can't go teach in the, in the public schools. There's all kinds of expertise from all kinds of adults. Let's not be so presumptuous is to think that, uh, you know, the, the experts who just went to a teacher training college to learn how to teach are subject matter experts. Uh, there's classes free online. I mean, the, the world is abundant with expertise and information. Let's unlock that potential for our kids and not think that the government and its appointed experts uh, are the, you know, best options for our families. I mean, I, I'm a hopeless shopper when it comes to groceries. I, I wouldn't know the price of a loaf of bread or a or, or, or milk. Um, and if you unleashed me in a supermarket with no prices attached, I, I, I wouldn't know what I was paying for. I wouldn't know what value is. But the free market means that discerning customers who know what value is are able to, in effect, through the pricing mechanism, through the free market system, allow someone like me to make informed choices because the, the, the their choices, in effect, instruct me as to what represents value. And if you extend that to education, you only need a small number of parents who really know the detail for other parents to pick up the signals as to what is and what isn't good value in the in the in a competitive education system. Yeah. Yeah. And and frankly, I think that's why we often get opposition with these laws across the country. There are, any monopolist wants to defend the status quo because they enjoy significant perks and uh, and, and don't feel the competitive heat that they would if that monopoly was removed or reduced. 
Um, and so I, I think that is a big obstacle. There are people who are financially profiting from the status quo, who prefer to keep parents at an arm's length, who like the system because it serves them and their friends. Uh, but as we're seeing across the country, increasingly, there are a number of parents and children as well who feel like the system is not serving them. They are, you know, too intellectual, too, too uh, smart, and the school is holding them back. Or they have special needs and the, you know, individual education plan that they have for that child is not really working because the school is not, you know, fulfilling its obligations. There's all kinds of kids across a wide range of needs and interests who are not served in a one-size-fits-all system. We shouldn't think that they ought to be. Let's empower them to look elsewhere, uh, recognizing that the vast majority of kids are and their parents are still going to choose public schools, but let's open up a marketplace. Let's have more options. Let's have you know creativity and innovation in education because, again, we've been stuck with something for 150 years that hasn't really changed. Uh, let's prepare kids for a future economy rather than the one that we left behind a century ago. Two or three years ago, there were one, maybe one and a half states in the whole of America that had this system of, in effect, allowing choice and competition. Um, now, um, there are half a dozen. Utah recently joined that list. Um, Arkansas, across the river from us, recently joined that list. We're not making progress here in Mississippi at all. What is it that you guys are doing and what is it that we should be doing here in Mississippi to try to make this argument and make it in a way that resonates with perhaps slightly less ideological politicians? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very compelling question. It's the million dollar question. Uh, how do you manufacture and generate interest where none or very little exists? Um, what we're seeing in some states, including mine in Utah, is that there's um, post-pandemic, there's a big shift in public sentiment of, uh, about so-called school choice. And in part because many parents saw what happened with Zoom school and they saw, you know, they see the uh, books in the libraries that are you know, pushing gender war stuff and they're increasingly aware and awake to what is going on. Public polling has, has demonstrated in your state and every state a huge increase. And so I think you see a lot of politicians who are a little bit more sensitive to that and wanting to be a leader and not a laggard. I think you're also seeing some competitive pressure between the states. Um, I heard from lawmakers in my state who were like, oh, I don't want to, you know, be the fifth state or the 10th state on this. Let's be a leader. Let's, you know, let's try and get ahead of this and, and um, you know, be one of the early states that does this. We want to look like we're forward thinking and that we're responsive to the needs of our constituents. Uh, so I, I think, you know, you you find some peer competition between some states that are more inclined to. Yes, surely Mississippi can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, the, if not them, why us? In, in our case, uh, Arizona is often a state that Utah relates a lot to. And Arizona did theirs first. And so a lot of Utah lawmakers were like, oh, well, if they did it, you know, then that's fine. Another big thing is a lot of people have feared the teachers unions. Um, and uh, and over the years, they've they've uh, been politicians have not wanted to fight them. And, and so they don't really push school choice. But teachers unions have never been weaker uh, uh, at all, especially post-COVID, because they wanted to keep the schools closed for quite some time. In our state, when the teachers union opposed our school choice bill, they had about 100, 150 people present at their rally. And then I think it was the following day, or it was with the, uh, the, within a few days after, we held our parents' rally, and we had over a 1,000 people um, and so it was just a, a great showing to show that, look, this historical power of the teachers union is waning. 
let's recognize that fact and not be scared about moving forward with good policy because someone's not going to like it. In West Virginia, the they tried to uh, have a legal challenge to the program uh, that passed there, and that failed. In Arizona, they tried to collect signatures to do a referendum against the program. They failed to get enough signatures. So I think for advocates, it's never been a better time. I think there are going to be increasing numbers of states um, and then leaders in Arkansas need to just make it, uh, or excuse me, in Mississippi need to decide, you know, do we want to be the, you know, 40th state to do this? Or do we want to, you know, move ahead and have some leadership when it comes to this area? So I think some peer accountability and competition can perhaps help your your uh, legislators in Mississippi. Uh, but really, it has to be about the parents. It has to be the community speaking out and saying, well, why did my, my aunt and you know, Utah has this and my business partner in Arizona has this. Why can't we do this in Mississippi? And you need to galvanize the community to uh, uh, focus some of that pressure and leverage some of the, the activity happening across the country to say, you know, hey, they have it. We deserve this, too. Let's get this done and and, and uh, apply the right pressure to the right people and uh, hope for the best. Connor, it has been a, an honor and a privilege talking to you about your book. Very well done for publishing it. Um it Thank is you. inspirational hearing from someone who's actually, you're far too modest to say this, but I'll say it, you're one of the, the, the architects of the change in your state. So um, very well done. Um, we will we will try to um, follow where Utah leads. Um, well done. And um, how are the book sales going? Are they doing well? Yeah, we had a, a great book launch. Uh, we've got a number of people who've endorsed it. Former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos did the foreword. Glenn Beck, Chris Rufo, Pete Hegseth, and others have all uh, endorsed the book. So sales have been very strong, which which I'm excited about. Uh, it's all on Amazon, so you can search Mediocrity on Amazon to find it there and hope everyone picks up a copy. Thank you so much, Connor. Real pleasure to have you on. Best of luck. Thanks, Douglas.